1: This is Derek Bukema, pastor of Orland Park Christian Reformed Church, and I'm so glad that you've joined us today for Grounded and Growing in Christ here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Each weekday at this time, we open God's Word, exploring how it changes us and brings us closer to Him. Right now, we are in a message series called The Living Church of the Living King, looking at the beautiful and glorious picture of Jesus Christ as the living one that gives our call to the church. To hear all of the messages in this series... Please visit GroundedAndGrowingRadio.com And if you'd like to help provide financial support for this radio ministry, you can make a gift of any size at that same website, GroundedAndGrowingRadio.com If you're not already a part of a local church family, then I would like to invite you to visit us at Orland Park CRC this Sunday as we gather to worship the Lord and study His Word together. To find our service times and location information, just visit GroundedAndGrowingRadio.com And now... Let's open God's Word to see what He has for us today. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation? We're going to be taking a look at Revelation chapter 1, starting at verse 9 and reading through verse 20. Last, we started a sermon series through the book of Revelation. We were able to take a look at the prologue and the greeting that was offered to the seven churches. And today, we're able to take a look at the glorious vision that John has of the Son of Man. Let's remember as we hear this, that this is God's word. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and in the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, "'Write what you see in a book, and send it to the seven churches in Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea.' Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like wool, like snow.' I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things which you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. When you conceive of the Lord Jesus the one who is your Savior and your Lord, how is it that you think of him? And how is it that you think on him? Now, do you think of him as the baby that's born in a manger that was wrapped in swaddling clothes and and placed here in this feed trough, this place where the animals would feed from? Do you picture Jesus as the boy who amazed the people in the temple as he disputed with some of the religious leaders, amazed at his knowledge? Do you picture him as the rabbi, teacher, and healer, the one who gave the blind their sight and gave the lame the ability to walk, the one who cleansed lepers and restored healing to the deaf, the one who raised the dead, the one who preached good news to the poor. Perhaps the way that you conceive of your Savior as you speak of him is as the one who is on the cross, bleeding and dying for the complete forgiveness of all of your sins if you trust in him. Or maybe your conception of Jesus is of the risen Christ, amazing his disciples as he appears in their midst and, and helping his disciples, the doubting disciple, by saying, here, touch my hand, touch my side, see that I really am alive. But as you think about Jesus, how is it that you think of him? Each one of those images that I've mentioned is biblical, and yet none of those images capture the way that your Savior is now, at this moment Because your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who saves you from sin and death is now glorified and glorious as he sits at the right hand of the Father. And it's the resurrected, ascended, and glorified Christ that the Apostle John encounters in this section of Scripture. And the glory of Jesus in this passage is astounding to the point of fear on the part of John. And this is amazing because John had lived with Jesus for three years. He knew him well. I mean, they had they had eaten together, they had traveled together, they had, they had slept in the same areas. I mean, they were in close community for three years, all three years of, of the ministry of the Lord Jesus. And now, as John sees him, he's afraid. He has to be told not to fear. This picture of our glorious Savior shows us a Savior who is to be feared, but it's also a picture that should not make you afraid. In fact, it's a picture that should give you hope and comfort and joy because the glorious risen Christ has power over death. And he protects and he keeps his church, which means that if you're within his church, if you're in his church, a faithful congregation in his church, you're safely held by your glorious Savior. And and this text can be rightly divided into three different sections. The first gives us a challenging location. The second tells us about our glorious Savior. And the last tells us about the Apostle's task, the task that the Apostle John was given. These are the three sections of the text this morning. And so let's start by taking a look at the challenging location. In verse 9, the Apostle John continues his introduction. John is writing to the churches as a brother. That's the way that verse 9 starts. I, John, your brother— He, like the saints in the churches who would be receiving his letter, was a Christian and therefore a part of the family of God. This is an important truth about you. If you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have an identity of being a part of God's family, which means that your brothers and sisters are all of those that also trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. It means those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ along with you here today. It means all of those across the face of the whole earth, regardless of language or culture or ethnic background, who claim the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, these are your brothers and sisters, but also all of those who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ throughout time. And so John, as he writes to these churches and introduces himself as your brother in the Lord Jesus Christ, we realize John. is our brother too, if we trust in him also. John is a brother of the saints to whom he is writing, and he also is a partner in the tribulation. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation in the kingdom. This is the way that he introduces things. Last week, as I was giving the first message in this series, I mentioned that there was a persecution that was going on at this time, and the text tells us that. John mentions that he's a part of the tribulation along with the churches who are receiving his message. The churches at the time of this letter were experiencing persecution and John notes that he's a partner in this. This tells us that this was not a period of comfort or rest. It was, in fact, a period of tribulation, of persecution. And part of what helps us to see that is the location from which John is writing. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God. John is writing from Patmos. Now, when we read that, we might take for granted that this is simply a location from which he is writing and pass by that we don't realize what the island of Patmos was. It was an island for convicts. If you were arrested and the government wanted to keep you imprisoned, they would exile you to the island of Patmos. Because it was surrounded by water, there was no escape. You were captured there along with all the other convicts that had been placed on this island. I think maybe the best way for us to understand this is if John had written the church and said, I, John, in Alcatraz, right? I am situated on this prison colony. So the apostle indicates through his location that he's an imprisoned man enduring tribulation and persecution, which was common for Christians at the time. He had been imprisoned for the gospel, and that's what he says on Patmos, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. The imprisonment of John may actually be a surprise, not because he's imprisoned, but because he's still alive. A lot of scholars say that this book was written, this letter was written to the churches around the year 90, A.D. 90, and by that time, if this was when the book was written, every single one of the other apostles, the group of which John was a part, had gone to their death a martyr for the cause of the gospel. Church history records that each one of those men, except for John, who died himself in exile on the island of Patmos, each one of the other apostles died a martyr for the faith, a martyr for the gospel. Probably most famously, the Apostle Peter was, was killed by crucifixion. And church tradition says that he was crucified upside down because he said that he was not worthy of dying in the same manner as his Savior, Jesus. And so he wanted to be crucified upside down rather than right side up. Didn't think himself worthy. This indicates the necessity of patient endurance for those who are in Christ Jesus. The location of John... And the fact that he says that he is a partner with them in patient endurance indicates that there's no such thing as the promise of an easy life for those who are in Christ Jesus. In fact, John, the apostle who is most famous for his call to love, I mean, his book, 1 John, is just filled with exhortations to Christians to love one another. And again, part of church history says that as John became an older man, he lost the ability to walk, and so he would need to be carried by others into church services. And as he was carried into church services that were going on, it said that John would just repeat the same phrase to the brothers and the sisters that were gathered together worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. He would look at them and just say, love one another, love one another, love one another, love one another. And this apostle of love was nonetheless considered an enemy of the state. And so he was arrested and placed on an island for convicts. Patient endurance is right. You know, I wonder, by way of beginning, how many of us are willing to patiently endure for the cause of Christ Jesus? Patience is a virtue that's not often formulated or found naturally in the society in which we live. It's hard for us to be patient. I testify to you that it is hard for me to be patient. I ordered my wife a gift a couple of months ago. I know, I'm I'm bragging a little bit during the message. I ordered my wife a gift, and I didn't order it through Amazon, which is often the way that we order it, right? Do you know that if you order something through Crate and Barrel, you can't expect the same quick shipping that you can if you order something through Amazon? Now, this is to my own shame and embarrassment. I placed the order, and I chose standard shipping because that's what was free. And so I assumed, ah, two days, just like Amazon. And then it showed up eight to ten business days. Two weeks. And I was by myself and I just said, that's forever. And then I was like, that's embarrassing. That's so quick. It's so embarrassing that I have a hard time waiting for two weeks for something to arrive. John is somebody who is waiting for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. He had been there when Jesus had ascended into heaven. Jesus said, behold, I'm coming soon. This is some patient endurance, right? I don't know the mind of the apostle, but I'm sure that if I were to have heard those words, I would have assumed, oh, maybe that's eight to ten business days. Jesus will be back. And yet that wasn't the case. When Jesus said, I'm coming soon, he didn't mean it the way that Crate and Barrel meant it. Didn't mean it the way that Amazon meant it. He meant soon in a different way than, than those apostles would have been tempted to believe. And so as one after another after another went to their death for the cause of Christ Jesus, and as Jesus was not returning, this called for patient endurance. My lack of patience in waiting for a coffee maker demonstrates my weakness in patience for the sake of Christ Jesus. But John assumes that we need it, that we need patience as we Look forward to the time when Christ will make all things new again. As we struggle with the reality that this world is not the way that it's supposed to be. As we deal with the difficulty that we face, disappointment, distress, and death. As we face all of these things, we need to patiently endure, knowing that the return of Christ is promised. And the fact that he will set all things aright will be actualized. Until that day, be patient and endure
0: That's groundedandgrowingradio.com.
1: And now more from Pastor Derek in our series called The Living Church of the Living King, looking at the beautiful and glorious picture of Jesus Christ as the living one that gives our call to the church. And The kind of endurance that was expected for the Christians at the time of the book of Revelation far transcends anything that I have to offer. The Christians at this time were facing death because they would not reject Christ Jesus. It was a real, a real thing that many Christians at this time might have to face. That if you trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, it might mean that you would lose your life. Sometimes I'm silent because I don't want to make a social situation uncomfortable. And this is to my shame. What an embarrassment for me and for us. For the patient endurance of the Apostle John. Reminds us of the call of those who follow Jesus Christ to be patient and endure until he returns. And it was in the midst of this patient endurance. And it was in the midst of experiencing negative earthly consequences for his trust in his Savior that the Lord Jesus appears to John. And we hear about first a voice that sounds behind him resounding like a trumpet. You know, sometimes when we have worship services here, sometimes during cantatas, sometimes during orchestra Sundays, we have trumpets that are a part of our praise team, part of the worship service. Do you ever hear a trumpet in the course of a worship service? Or do you ever hear a trumpet when you're listening to some sort of music and find your spirit lifted? I do. There's a reason that the trumpet has been historically the instrument that's been used to call armies to battle, because it elevates the spirit when it sounds loud and clear. It awakens the heart to action. And what John hears is a voice that's like a trumpet, and it says, write what you see in a book and send it to the churches, John is about to receive a revelation from God, a pulling back of the veil to reveal that there is a power greater than the Roman Empire, a power greater than the empire which has imprisoned him upon the island of Patmos. That great empire of Rome was transcended by one far, far greater, by a glorious Savior. And it's a glorious Savior that John then sees. John turns to see where the voice is coming from, and the first thing that he sees are seven golden lampstands. Now, that probably seems odd to us. What in the world? Seven lampstands? We'll get more into that later, but in the midst of the lampstands is one like the Son of Man, and immediately we know who this is. Who is the one who is like a Son of Man? Well, the book of Daniel tells us. In Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14, we're told about the Son of Man. Let me read to you these two verses from the book of Daniel, from the prophet Daniel. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came, to, came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is the Son of Man, the one whose kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom which shall not pass away and will not be destroyed. And then the Gospels confirm it. The term that Jesus most often used for himself in the Gospels is the term the Son of Man. This is Jesus standing among the lampstands. John had turned to see the one who was very familiar to me to him, the one that he had walked with for three years of the earthly ministry of Jesus, the one that he had eaten with and been instructed by and seen die and witnessed resurrected. John's Savior and your Savior was ascended to heaven and is now utterly glorious. And we know and we can see how glorious he is because of the way that the scriptures describe him. His clothing is a long robe, and it has a golden sash on it. This is the clothing of the high priest for the people of Israel. It shows us that Jesus is the great high priest, alone, able to make atonement for sin. The hairs of his head are white. This indicates age and wisdom and respect and dignity. Christ's white hair adds to his brilliance. Maybe we should realize that the possession of white hair indicates someone who is due respect. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And can you imagine this? Can you imagine this? The eyes of our glorious Savior are so brilliant that they produce their own light by which he might see. And even his feet are glorious. They're like burnished bronze that's refined in a fire. And his voice is like the roar of many waters. Have you ever been to Niagara Falls? I've been there. Let me tell you a little bit about it. When you approach the falls, you can, from a great distance, hear the roar of the cascading water. And as you get nearer and nearer to the falls, their roar becomes louder and louder. And as you stand at this brilliant geographical feature, seeing the, seeing the gallons upon gallons of water tumbling down, the roar that is emitted by this tumbling water adds to the incredible grandeur of this location. And the grandeur that is indicated by this popular spot for visiting, because of its great beauty and majesty, this grandeur characterizes the speaking voice of Christ Jesus. In his right hand, the text says he holds some stars. What are they? What are they? Well, the very end of this section of Scripture tells us, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. One of the things that you'll see as we continue working our way through the book of Revelation is that each letter is written to the angel of a specific church. If, if your Bible is open, you can just take a look. That right in, the, in chapter two, it says to the angel of the church of Ephesus, write. And then it goes on from there. Each one of the letters is written to the angel of a specific church. To this angel, write this thing. Now, what in the world? This star represents the angel of a church. What is the angel of a church? Sadly, no one knows for sure. I wrote to a friend of mine who's a who's a a, a, a biblical scholar. And I thought, you know, I just can't crack this whole angel thing. So I wrote to him, and I was like, I need your help. I'm writing a sermon on the book of Revelation. Tell me, what is the angel of a church? And he writes back, brother, that's the million-dollar question. No one knows... Now, in, in, uh, in African-American theology, the angel of the church is assumed to be the pastor of the church, and that's something that can make sense because angel, the, the word in Greek, this means messenger, and so, so one, of the, one of the plausible things is that this is the, the pastor of a church that's being written to, the messenger, the one who receives a message and then gives it to the people. It may be that this doesn't refer to someone in particular. It may not be that there is an angel posted at each church that this is written to, but it may be to show that the message that comes to each church is one that comes from God and through God, and that at the center of each church must be this message of God and messenger of God, and that each church is upheld by God. But at its base, one of the things that everyone recognizes is this language of lampstand and, and angel of a church and star, that this is, this is a reference to the church itself. And so what this means is that as Christ Jesus is holding these these stars in his hand, he's holding on to the churches. He's the one that has them. He holds the churches. The picture of Jesus continues. Out of his mouth comes a double-edged sword, a sharp two-edged sword. And so not only is this a glorious picture of the Lord Jesus, it's also a fearsome one. You see, the Bible is described as a sword throughout the New Testament. We're told that the word of God is living and active, that it's sharper than any double-edged sword. And from the mouth of the Lord Jesus comes a sword, You see, the weapon needed to defeat the enemies of the Lord is the word of the Lord. Do we recognize the potency of the word of the Lord? You would not trifle with a sharp two-edged sword. Don't trifle with the word of God. And the brilliance of the Son of God, the brilliance of the Savior, is punctuated by his face, which shines like the sun at midday. When the sun is shining outside, you can't look at it Even a temporary glance at the sun shining in its strength can do irrevocable damage to our retinas. And the face of the Lord Jesus is like the sun at full strength. This is how glorious he is. And this glorious son of man, the glorious savior of the apostle John, our glorious savior, this glorious picture causes a response. John falls down. And this makes sense, doesn't it? All throughout the scriptures, we recognize that the Lord God, that Jesus Christ, is utterly glorious. Throughout the Old Testament and the New, when people see some sort of veiled picture of God, it changes them forever. Jacob saw only a ladder, and yet in seeing the ladder, said, surely the Lord is here, and set up an altar to the Lord there. Moses saw a burning bush. And being in the presence of the bush that was burning, he had to remove his sandals because he was on holy ground. Paul saw only a light and heard a voice. And yet, this voice of the Lord God and this light which he saw was enough to blind him. Here, John sees the exalted Christ, and as he looks at his face shining with radiance and his eyes flaming like fire and and sees the two-edged sword coming from his mouth, he falls at his feet as though he is dead. This is a fitting response. Don't miss this. Your picture determines your posture. The picture of the Lord Jesus that you have determines your posture. When you realize the glory of Jesus, the natural response is to fall down at his feet, to recognize his glory, and to worship him as the one who transcends any and all else. This is a fitting response.
0: You've been listening to today's message from Pastor Derek Bukema